0: Let's begin. <laughs> Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah is speaking the words of God to his people here and describes the condition of men, of everyone. That means you, your heart, your nature, you are desperately sick with sin. That is the human condition that the Bible describes. Even we who were born again in Christ still feel the effects of our old way and our old nature and our depraved heart. Depressing, right? Who wants to hear that? Well, nobody. I personally like to think of myself as smart, talented, a young man with a heart of giving and a love for others. I want to think well of myself and the best of my intentions. And very importantly, I want you to think well of me too. I want you to think that I'm smart, so I talk in a witty and often sarcastic manner. So you think, wow, he always has something intelligent to say. (laughs) I want you to think that I'm talented, so I will show you the things that I have accomplished or show off in front of you. I want you to think that I'm a young man, so I try to work harder and faster than you because I'm young and strong, and I want you to think I'm giving, so I hardly ever say no, and I want you to think that I love others, so I try to get in others' business and give my advice whenever, even when it's not asked. Uh, You may feel that I'm just describing me, but this is a condition that we all face. To boil it down, spiritually, we all minimize our bad and maximize our good. We want people to think we have it all together by hiding our failures and our flaws and showing off our adherence to rules and social norms. But it goes much deeper than that, doesn't it? We go to great lengths to protect the image that we have created. And when we feel that image threatened by another, we will in turn... Expose their failures and flaws and criticize their adherence to rules and social norms. And if we're honest, it feels good to do that. It feels good to expose and to criticize someone else. One reason is that we want to feel moral superiority. We think of ourselves as good and moral, and the best way to prove that is to compare our goodness to someone else's failures. Another reason is we expose and criticize others is, to make, uh, is because it makes us feel powerful. We alone have the power to pass judgment and criticize another, and we're moral enough to spot their failures. There are probably hundreds of other reasons, uh, but I think this last one is the root of it all, pride. Pride. The sin of pride causes us to expose and to criticize others because that is ultimately a vehicle by which we exalt ourselves. Thus the heart is exposed. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Its primal desire is to promote, protect, and exalt self, its own idol, and crush anyone who gets in the way. Are you feeling better about yourself now? (laughs) If this truth hurts, it's because your idol is being threatened. You are planning your defense and arguing your case for your goodness, but you're not alone. There is a room full of people in here with you that are doing the same thing minimizing their sin, maximizing their goodness, and their feelings about themselves. We all struggle with pride, sin, and goodness. Our hearts are desperately sick. And deceptive, it loves to tell us good things and hide the bad. That's why when we read this text, we can identify with the Pharisees. You see, we are them. We know their games and their rules because we do that stuff too. Uh, here's a short outline for where we're going today in the text. That I just want to uh, take out some principles that I'll talk about about the Pharisees, so that we can begin to think of how. We line up with them as well in our own lives. Number one, their goodness was external and purity was an external process. Number two, their lives became more and more about the rules and less and less about loving God. Number three, their legalism tried to subvert God's law. And number four, their hearts were defiled by sin more than they could ever clean. Now... Let's begin to peel away the layers of our own hearts and that of the Pharisees to see our desperate need for a Savior. If you'll turn with me to chapter 7 in the book of Mark, we are beginning in at verse 1. Mark says this, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come to Jerusalem. Now, why do important men, men of the law, men of the city, travel what would be close to 80 miles to the region of Galilee? Why would they leave their big city temple and their renown in the marketplace all to seek this one man, Jesus? Well, there had been much to do about him recently, hadn't there? Remember the villagers who ran around the Sea of Galilee only to catch up and beat the boat that the disciples and Jesus had taken across the sea to the desolate place upon which Jesus fed them and taught them. And now if we look back in chapter 6, verse 54, we can see what's been happening of most recent. 54 says this, And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring their sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And when, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Jesus' popularity just continued to grow, so much so uh, people were running from town to town telling of his coming. And large crowds gathered. In each town he reached mobs of people who surrounded him. Sick people touched him and his garments and they were made well. He had made a name for himself and people were giving him praise and seeking his wisdom. And now the Pharisees arrive. Here they come. The religious elite. The professional sin sniffers. Just a little background on the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a religious class known for strict adherence to the law of God and the extra biblical laws known as the oral Torah or the traditions. These laws were then the basis of their piety. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from the Hebrew word parush, which means one who is separated. The subtle nuances of the law, which they had mastered were such that a social gap was formed between the righteous elite and the common sinner. Thus the separation. And it was this separation that gave them their power and moral superiority and pride. So here they were gathered around Jesus and his disciples, and behold what they caught them doing. Verse 2, They saw some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. Now at first glance, what's wrong with pointing out nasty hands and asking that they be washed? My kids got nasty hands when they play outside, and they need to wash them before they eat their dinner. That's a normal and clean way to eat, right? But, to be clear, the Pharisees were not concerned with germs, but what was ceremonially unclean. Bakers Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, say that three times fast, says in the Old Testament times the ordinary state of most things was cleanness, but a person could contract ritual uncleanness or impurity in a variety of ways by skin diseases, discharges of bodily fluids, touching something dead, or eating unclean foods. There were, in fact, three stages of cleanness in this society. Holy, clean, and unclean. So to give a couple of examples, uh, sacrificial animals, animals that could be sacrificed to God in the temple, were holy. Animals that could be eaten but not sacrificed were clean. And animals that could be neither sacrificed nor eaten were unclean. Another example, as far as people go, priests were holy, common Jews were clean, and everyone else in the entire world called Gentiles was unclean. One more time, the temple, holy, the land of the Jews, the the Jews inhabited, clean, and the entire rest of the, the world where the Gentiles lived was unclean. The Old Testament does have laws and procedures that uh, support this concept. However, as we will see, the Pharisees go way overboard. But notice here their concern. They came all this way to confront Jesus, and they came up with a lack of washing hands? That's absurd, unless you see it from their position. Point number one about the Pharisees. They believed that goodness was external and their purity was an external process. Hands must be washed. Rules must be followed. Don't eat this. Don't go there. This is what makes a person clean or holy and acceptable before God. And hey, if you become unclean, that's no problem. There was a process that you could walk out by washing or bathing to restore you to cleanness. You can clean yourself, they say. And we do the same, don't we? Oftentimes we minimize our sin by acting if it's as if it's only external and not a heart condition against God. By doing so, we believe if we just change some things around, we can course correct and keep on going. Thus, we neglect the work of our Savior by pretending that behavioral modifications or trying harder can save us. Listen, do not follow the example of the Pharisees. External cleanness is a path to hell. Only a heart that calls on Christ To clean you from the inside out will save. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the the tradition of elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. All this was in parentheses, as you see Mark is interjecting a commentary on what was referred to as the oral law or the oral Torah. It was said to have been given to Moses for the exposition of the Torah, and as each generation of rabbis came to govern, they added to this oral tradition with their own judgments and decisions, much like case law that a lawyer must study before presenting his case, the list just keeps on growing. It was later written down in the 2nd century AD and called the Mishnah and contained six parts called orders. Each order contains 7 to 12 tractates, and each tractate is subdivided by chapters and paragraphs. All total, there was over 600 laws that must be adhered to to remain clean and undefiled. 600. And at this time, they weren't written down. These laws were memorized. They were meditated on. They were lived out from memory without much else to do. Um, It must have been a full-time job just keeping up with it. And it was. These were professional religious people. But were their hearts close to God? Were they righteous and holy as they desired to be? No. Here's the second point about the Pharisees. A life consumed with rules is not a life consumed with God. For the Pharisees, to grow closer to God was to become more perfect in every detail of their life. But instead of growing more close to God and more perfect, it hardened their hearts with pride. I can do this. I can adhere to 600 laws of the oral Torah or the traditions. I can remain clean, pure, and holy, and I can do it without you, God. (gasps) Did Did I say that out loud? Oh, how quick we can be to do the same thing. Don't be like the Pharisees. Do you ever realize that when our focus is on what not to do, we lose focus on the intent of what we're doing? Here's an example. If I take my wife out on a date, how much attention could I focus on her if all I was thinking about was not lusting after other women? If I am consumed consumed with what not to do, I lose sight of the beautiful woman sitting across from me at the dinner table who shares my last name. I'm not saying it's proper to lust. It's actually improper to lust. We should not have a lustful heart. But if that's all we are consumed by, it's all we think about, we we miss the point. We miss the love. What about driving? If before you pulled out of your driveway you recited the Georgia driver's handbook, <laughs> you will never get anywhere. The commands of the Bible are real and we should learn to uh, obey them. And the Bible is primarily a book about God and his epic chase after the heart of his people. It should therefore draw us into a love relationship with our God and our Savior. Instead of obeying God's laws in order to be accepted, we should acknowledge first that you are accepted by God, through faith in Christ. And may your obedience be joyful. Verse 6, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Can you tell that they were getting under Jesus' skin? Jesus knows these people. Elsewhere, he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. And now he is calling them hypocrites. Those are cutting words from God himself. Remember the God you say it is that you are remaining clean and holy for. But Jesus seethes at their hypocrisy. These men are not lovers of God. They are self-loving legalists. Now, to be clear, the term legalist can be used incorrectly in Christian circles. A person who seeks to understand and adhere to the commands of the Bible is not a legalist. Neither is someone who says, Jesus says this, therefore I must obey. Nor is someone who comes to you and says, hey, stop doing that because it's against biblical principle. No, Jesus here gives us a great definition in the text. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Legalism then is placing the doctrines of man above the commandments of God. Here's an example of what they did. Okay. They took God's word, say Exodus 30, 17 through 20, where it says that Aaron and his sons must wash their hands and wash their feet before entering the tabernacle for sacrifice and offerings. The text describes the requirements for priests in the tabernacle. But the oral tradition extended it, this requirement to all Jews saying that all must wash before they eat and when they come from the marketplace and at other times. Then they enforce their law as if it were God's law, once again boosting their own righteousness. Here's some practical examples of how we use our biblical application as a rule for measuring others. And when I say we, I mean not you guys, other people. Uh, Number one, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Therefore, everyone must read the King James Version only or in our context, the ESV. Uh, Number two, in parenting, the Bible says train up a child in the way that it it should go. Um, Your application of the text is that you have chosen in your family to homeschool or to send your child to a Christian school. Now, whenever another parent sends their child to public school, you quietly scoff at them in your mind and high-five yourself for your moral and spiritual superiority. Number three, church dress. (laughs) In the church that I grew up in, this was a big deal. The Bible makes clear some general principles about the adornment of worshipers. Number one, be modest. Paul talks about women with braided hair and dangly earrings, but really, in our context, that means keep the skin covered up and also, don't make it about you. Don't wear clothing. Don't wear jewelry. Don't wear your hair in such a way that it puts all the attention on you and none on God. The gathering of God's people is about the worship and praise of God. Therefore, our dress should not be for show or to purposely point attention to oneself. When I was 16, I was told that it was time that I started to wear a suit jacket. Young men and older men alike were to wear suit jackets and slacks, probably a tie too. And this had a great effect on me. I spent an inordinate amount of time and money devoted to purchasing expensive clothing that I wore for one hour a week. And how do you think I felt when someone showed up in jeans and a t shirt? Morally and spiritually superior. I was better than them. I had met the criteria for a young man in God's assembly. And they completely missed the mark. My heart was prideful. It was cold. And it was judgmental. Just like the hearts of the Pharisees. A prideful cold and judgmental heart they had. That is what legalism breeds. But that's not the heart God calls us to have, is it? He calls us to have a heart of love. Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. But Isaiah just said of the Pharisees, The Pharisees and scribes didn't love the Lord with all of their heart because their hearts were prideful. Though they speak of God with their lips, their heart is far from me. They didn't love the Lord their God with all of their soul, for they worship God in vain. They worship God all the while teaching as equal to Scripture the commandments of men. And they didn't love the Lord with all of their might because they left God in His commandments. They aborted, neglected, canceled, and undercut the commandments of God to cling to with all their might the traditions of men. They didn't love the Lord with all their might because they left God in His commandments. No wonder Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. These men were so pious and clean on the outside, but dark, defiled, and dead on the end. Jesus is so tired of their constant attempts at undercutting him. These men had no true love of the Lord, but a love of themselves and their positions and their traditions. Jesus says, you guys are great at that. And then he dives back into scripture for yet another example of their hypocrisy. Verse 10, for Moses said, honor your father and mother and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such, such things you have, you do. Yet again, the Pharisees are promoting a rule to the contrary of God's word. Therefore, Jesus confronts their hypocrisy by citing their discrepancy. Moses says, honor your father and mother. Yet you, the Pharisee says, no, you really don't have to do that if you follow this step. "'Thereby saying, if you do what we say, "'then you don't have to do what Moses said.' "'Back then there was no nursing homes "'for people who couldn't take care of themselves anymore, "'so it was incumbent upon the child "'to take care of his aging parents.' but the Pharisees were following a rule that gave an out to the child if he told his parents to give his inheritance to God. Therefore, he no longer was bound by the law of God because he was following the rule of man. Jesus, who is the Word of God, was furious at their attempts to thwart Scripture by building up themselves and trashing the Word of God. Now we see Jesus take hold of the situation, gather the people back to him so that he could preach and renounce the man-made religion of the Pharisees. In verse 14, it says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of a person that is going to defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. The people had backed away As the Pharisees and scribes had made their attacks on Jesus, lest they become the targets of the sin sniffing. Jesus calls them closer and rebukes the entire system of ceremonial cleanliness right there in front of the Pharisees. He says, All of the hand washing in the world will never cleanse your defiled heart. You men have missed the whole picture. And how dangerous is this too? People are often misled by the twisting of Scripture. Just remember the serpent in the garden. What did he do with Eve? Twisted the Word of God. And it was ongoing in Jesus' day, in the day of the New Testament church, and today. Church. Be on guard for those who would tweak, twist, twist, or omit the word of God. There is only one gospel, and it is this. God saves sinners by his grace through faith in his son Jesus and the substitutionary work that he did in our place and for our sins, all for the glory of God alone. Verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left to the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. Do you not see how the Pharisees are wasting their time? Do you not see how they're wasting their life? They are focused on the wrong things. Clean hands may not make you sick, but they do not make you well. The heart is what is defiled, not the stomach. If you eat something bad, you'll get rid of it. The body has a natural way of getting rid of the nasty, either from the top or the bottom. And that's not the issue. Thus he declared barbecue awesome. (laughs) Moving along to verse 20. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Here's the last point that the Pharisees should know. Our hearts are defiled by sin more than we can ever clean. This is where they missed the mark. Jesus unleashes a floodgate of sin and defilement before the disciples as a means of showing them the real problem. And here is the great equalizer. All who heard him then and now are guilty. We are all guilty of our sin and no amount of washing can cleanse us. So, in hearing this list, which sins stick out to you the most? Which do you consider to be the biggest? Sexual immorality? Murder? Theft? Adultery? What about evil thoughts? Deceit? Envy? Pride? Are they to be considered small? Small? Is it the ones that you do not feel that you commit? Well, I've never stolen. I've never murdered anyone. Or is it the ones that you think I'm speaking to you right now? In dealing with our sin, we can easily fall into two wrong views. The first is to see our sin is not that big of a deal. My sin is just my thoughts. My sin is unnoticed. My sin doesn't hurt anyone. Therefore, it's not a big deal. The second view of sin is to believe that our sin is too big. It could never be reconciled or forgiven. God is so displeased with me and I am so ashamed of myself that I can never get out from under God's displeasure and my guilt. The first is wrong because all sin is displeasing to God and without Christ it separates us eternally from His presence and because of it the wrath of God is coming as punishment for us. Yeah, yeah. That's why I like lists like this. Because it lists sin as sin no matter how we would perceive it. It leaves no room for pride but becomes a great equalizer to all who read it. The second error is is that sin does, not, does have graduated effects here in this life, yet is equally paid for by the cross of Christ. Can I get an amen? Yes. Thinking of stealing your neighbor's car is a sin. Actually going into his driveway and cranking it up and driving off in it as if it is yours is a sin as well. The first does not involve a police chase, and the second does. Yet, both are equally displeasing to God and equally damning without Christ. That's why one like evil thoughts can be on the list with murder. Our thoughts are like the breeding ground for our debasement. We are accountable to God for our thoughts. Just think back when Jesus says, if you've hated someone in your heart, then you've committed murder. If you lust after someone in your heart you've committed adultery, that's right. Our thoughts are like the moldy spot in the shower that grows and grows as we ignore it. We must control them. We must kill them. We must replace them with God-honoring thoughts. For, for time, I'm not going to go over each one, uh, but I would like to hit two more uh, like I said in the beginning, we like to feel superior. We like to feel powerful. We like to look out for number one. And if we are doing that, we are more than willing to trample anyone who gets in my way. And we are willing to dethrone God and enthrone ourselves. Pride is deadly. A prideful heart will not humble itself to pray, to repent. To give God his due glory and praise, but be aware. God promises to break through. Obadiah 1, verse 3 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there, I will bring you down, says the Lord. Last is foolishness. That's the last one on the list, foolishness. It is the all-encompassing one, right? Sin is foolishness. It is illogical. It doesn't make sense. Why do we chase after the fleeting pleasures of sin when the pain is shortly to come? Why do we risk our marriage Our future and our relationship with God, all for the temporary fix. It doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. And alone we can do nothing to change our heart. That's what the answer to all this is. Here's the sins that come from the heart. What's the answer? Don't do that. Well, how do we don't do that? I can't just start don't doing that. (laughs) My heart is desperately sick. I need a physician. Jesus said, "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick." I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's the good news this morning. There's the good news. After 34 minutes of telling you how bad you are and how sick and twisted your heart is, there is one that can change your heart, and that is Jesus. You alone, through the uh, washing of your hands, through the washing of cups and copper pots and vessels, you by uh, white-knuckling it, You by course correcting and changing your behavior will never change your heart. It is only through the power of God, through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who died in your place and for your sins, that your heart can be changed, that your heart can be new, and that you can live everlasting with Christ in heaven. And look forward with joy to His return. Here's a couple of points of application before I let you go. Number one, we need to examine our external goodness. Are you living to please man or to please God? If man, then you will be swayed by the winds of their opinions and always be seeking to promote your outward appearance. God sees the heart. God wants your heart. Ask yourself why you were doing the things that you were doing and who you were doing them for and and seek after God that, that he would change your heart. Number two, live in grace and offer it to others. Break free of the bondage and slavery of being good enough to be loved by God. You will never keep all of the rules. In fact, you broke many of them this morning. But since God wants your heart, He wants you to continue to run to Him for forgiveness and for strength. Also, how can we call others to the perfection of the law that we know that we can never acquire? Instead of promoting your idol of self by exposing the weakness of others, try killing that idol by showing grace to others and patience and mercy and gentleness and kindness, which are the fruit of the spirit of the heart changed by God. And number three, rejoice in the Savior who can cleanse you from all defilement. Christians, We above all must be joyful people. It absolutely works this way that the more we see the horror and the debasement and defilement of our sin before God, the more beautiful our Savior's sacrifice becomes. On this earth, we should never, ever, ever quit rejoicing in Christ who has saved us from the penalty that we deserve because of our sinful hearts. He alone deserves our praises now and forevermore. Let's pray. Father God, how humbling your scripture is, as it takes us off of our high horse and places us on our knees before you, our mighty God, holy and pure are you, weak. And trembling are we. We praise you for the gift of your son Jesus. Lord I pray right now that the hearts of these people. Would be turned toward him as their Lord and their Savior. That that some would come to you this morning. Confessing their sin. Their defilement their attempts to make right and cleanse themselves and acknowledging that only you can save and your death was for them on the cross or Jesus humble our hearts as we go into a time of response that we would respond to your good gospel with hearts bleeding for you and desiring relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.